This is Chris Brooks. Thank you for listening to this edition of Equip. Be sure and subscribe for free so that you don't miss an episode. For more information, visit our website, equipradio.org. Well, hey there, friends. Welcome to another exciting edition of Equip with Chris Brooks. I'm so grateful that you've joined us today. Very special program. Why don't you strap on your seatbelt? We're going to navigate through the contours of culture, as always, with the lens of the biblical worldview on. But before we do that, let me remind you, this is the day that the Lord has made. He has given it as a gift so that you and I can rejoice and be glad in it. So let's do just that. Let's follow the word to the Apostle Paul. Let's rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. What a terrific program we have in store for you today. In just a moment or so, I'm going to have a, a special guest on. And, and then later on in the program, uh, Dr. Esau McCauley is going to be joining me to talk about his newest book. It's a memoir entitled How Far to the Promised Land. It's one black family's story of hope and survival in the American South. And it is riveting. And it's one that I believe will speak to all of our hearts, whether you are black or not, whether you're from the South or not. There's uh, so much redemption as well as the pain of what it means to live in a fallen world. Uh, The story of uh, Esau McCauley's family, I think, touches all of our story. So I'm thrilled to have Dr. McCauley with me a little bit later in the program. And we'll talk about how to process through family trauma, through the lens of the gospel, and how to see your story in light of God's overall story. So it's going to be a great conversation. But before we do that, I'm I'm so excited about a recent announcement made uh, by Moody Bible Institute. You guys know my affections for Moody and the historic role that Moody has played in the lives of so many through uh, the classroom, its education, its publishing, uh, through the books and writings, as well as radio. And I've got a chance to uh, be a part of the educational wing and the radio wings of, uh, of Moody. The naming of a building is always a historic moment for any college, any university, any seminary or graduate school. It is a historically significant moment. And recently, uh, it was announced that Moody was going to be adding a name to one of its buildings. And to talk about the significance of that, uh, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Winfred Neely. He's a friend of the program. Many of you know and appreciate him dearly. He is vice president and dean of Moody Theological Seminary and Graduate School. Dr. Neely, how are you today? I think we have some connection problems. We'll try that again, Dr. Neely. I'm not sure if you can hear me well. Dr. Neely, can you hear me? Oh, boy, I think the joys of technology, Dr. Neely, we'll try to reconnect with you in just a moment. I'll talk about the announcement, and hopefully we can get a better connection with Dr. Neely. Uh, But this uh, week, an announcement was made about uh, one of the illustrious alumni of Moody Bible Institute. She was an educator, an author, a humanitarian, a philanthropist, a stateswoman, a civil rights activist, a White House advisor to more than five U.S. presidents. And yes, she studied at Moody Bible Institute right there in Chicago, 
around the time of 1894 to 1895. I'm referring to Mary McLeod Bethune. And Mary McLeod Bethune, uh, recently it was announced, is going to have a building that will bear her name. And to talk about that significance, I think we have Dr. Neely back. Dr. Neely, how are you? Uh, Pastor Brooks, uh, I'm very well. Can you hear me? I can hear you now, sir, and it is great to have you. Uh, and I appreciate you fitting this into your schedule and, and joining me today sure, to talk about this historic and exciting announcement. I just uh, right. kind of set the stage for it. Can you talk about the significance of what Moody announced this week? Well, you know, we have decided to uh, change the name of Fitzwater Hall to uh, the Bethune-Fitzwater Educational Building. Uh, this way, we honor the memory of Perry Fitzwater, who served at MBI for 41 years, and we honor the legacy, the impact, and the, indeed the continuing impact of Mary McLeod Bethune, as you noted already, who actually studied at Moody Bible Institute, 1894, 1895, and, and went on uh, to just uh, serve God has such a massive impact in the area of education, train, the training of young African-American girls within the context of Scripture. Eventually, she's going to become an advisor to presidents of the United States, close friend of Eleanor Roosevelt. And now there's a statue of her in Statuary Hall in Washington, D.C., that was dedicated in 2022. So it is fitting and proper for Moody Bible Institute to honor one of its most illustrious alumna, um, Mary McLeod Bethune, by um, enshrining this in the very, in our very building. And that was the basis of the name change to the Bethune uh, Fitzwater Educational yes. Building. You know, I, I very rarely can I say this about a person that you can't tell American history fully, properly, and accurately without talking about Mary McLeod Bethune. I believe that. That's right. I don't, I I believe that you can't tell black history without talking about Mary McLeod Bethune. And I also believe that it's true. You can't tell Christian history in America without talking about this woman. And so there are so many ways to tell her story, but you alluded to it, Dr. Neely. This was not just a civil rights activist, though she was that, not just an educator, though she was that, this was a woman who was committed to the advancement of the gospel. Is that right? Yes, she was She was committed to the advancement of the gospel and made that commitment to the Lord Jesus when she was fairly young. I mean, she studied at the Scotia Seminary. She wanted to be a missionary. This was what was driving her. She wanted to be yes. a missionary. And that's one of the reasons why she actually studied that year at uh, Moody Bible Institute in preparation for her missionary service. Uh, for that did not work out, I, you know, I did, and, and I don't have the the, the the time to really discuss that sure. uh, in this short segment. But that didn't work out, so she stays in the United States and takes all of that missionary passion that she had to invest it in. Um, building up the kingdom of God, 
uh, through through education, through Sunday school, so forth and so on. I mean, she starts her first school with a dollar fifty cent, with five, four or five girls, and and her faith and her trust in God. Wow. Wow. One one of the buildings she named Faith Hall. That that was it was essentially a garbage dump when she got it. But by the time she gets done through faith and and prayer and faith and prayer and perseverance. Uh, Mayor McLeod Bethune is going to have a massive impact in the African-American community and on the world. In fact, that was one fella. I mean, it takes money to run schools. So she went to one wealthy white guy and asked him to become, she wanted to meet with him for him to become a trustee of the school. And he says to her, in essence, I understand you want me to become a trustee of your school. She says, I want you to become a trustee of a dream. Mm. You know, y'all want you to become a trustee of a dream. And uh, he got on board and brought into the dream that God had put in her heart. And I'm just so thankful that uh, to be a part of history, the, the, the arc of history is long. It I mean, is. So she comes, she, she comes, yeah. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I, I was just going to say, you... you have just teased out something I want to give as a homework assignment. I very rarely give homework assignments on this program, but I would encourage everyone, even if it was just a, a quick trip to Wikipedia or Google the the name Mary McLeod Bethune and learn about this incredible woman and her legacy, her commitment to God. It, you know, in many ways, the story of Moody Bible Institute can be told through the lives of people who helped to sure. shape it and impact it. And, and I was just told by our producer that it's on our, our Facebook page a little bit as well uh, yeah. uh, about Mary McLeod Bethune, so please go there. But uh, I think Emma Dreyer, who uh, also you know played a prominent role in uh in moody being launched out and uh yeah, sure, and, and, yeah, yeah. and and created and these stories are being told now and i'm so grateful for it and i'm not embarrassed to say that when i read this announcement uh i was uh brought almost to tears it was just such a joyful moment for me as yeah. someone who loves moody uh right. yes as an african-american as someone who yes. knows the incredible Christian legacy yeah. of this woman. And so right. I just want to say kudos to the entire team, Dr. Yeah. Mark Job, our trustees, and to yeah. you personally, my dear brother, uh, for helping to advocate for this. It's mm. been something that I've longed for for our uh, school for a long time, and, and I'm grateful to see this day. I am too, Chris. Listen, listen. Mary McLeod Bethune was the fifteenth of seventeen children. Her parents were slaves, sir. She was the first one born in eighteen seventy-five. She was the first one of the McLeod family that was born in freedom. When she was born, her mother knew it was something special about her. And so, but the point is, the point is, you may not have. Anything in your background yes. that suggests potential, possibility, aspirations, and impact. But God is able to come all, overcome all of that and do great things for the person's life. And so the, the <laughs> symbolic significance of Bethune being on one of the buildings, the symbolic significance of this 
right? Regardless of where you come from, you walk with God. There's no telling what God can do with your life. Mm. Again, I say thank you. I am grateful that, again, we get a chance to celebrate this moment. It's yes, with a, 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 lot of, uh, a lot of emotion and a very full heart that we yeah. celebrate the announcement of uh, the, the naming of, uh, of this wonderful uh, building now will carry uh, the name uh, Bethune on it as well. So I'm, I'm grateful, and uh, again, thank you for carving out the time. Uh, I hope oh, that sure. others are encouraged as well. We'll continue to pray, and I want to continue to encourage folks, if you're looking for a great place for your son or daughter to be trained for a lifelong uh, service to the Lord, if you yourself are looking for a graduate school or seminary to be equipped for a ministry of impact in the local church it globally, uh, for Christ for many years to come, I can't recommend highly enough Moody Theological Seminary and Moody Bible Institute. Uh, go to moody.edu. That's moody.edu. Thank you, Dr. Neely. Uh, we're going to take a break uh, and okay, again encourage you to go to our Facebook and Twitter uh, pages to find out more. But what a historical day. What a great announcement. Uh, the announcement of this wonderful moment uh, that that really was uh, years in the making. It did not happen uh, quickly, but I, I, I'm grateful for the administrators and the leaders that made it happen. Find out more about Mary McLeod Bethune at um, our website, EquipRadio.org, Facebook and Twitter pages as well. When we come back, I'll be happy to be joined by Dr. Esau McCauley as we talk about his newest book, a memoir entitled How Far to the Promised Land. You don't want to miss this riveting discussion. We'll be right back right after this. A little boy was overheard praying. Lord, if you can't make me a better boy, don't worry about it. I'm having a real good time just like I am. I bet you've got neighbors just like that little boy. Having a real good time just like they are. They don't appear to have any need for Jesus. But Jesus didn't come to make sinners a little better. He came to redeem hopelessly lost people by giving them new hearts and new hopes, a new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. On our program, Equip, evangelism is at the heart of all we do. As you call or click with your gift, you're helping us advance the gospel one conversation at a time. You can help us share the simple gospel with many more as you give now. Call 888-644-4144 or visit EquipRadio.org. Welcome back to Equip with Chris Brooks. A very special day for those who are Connected to Moody Bible Institute in any way, through radio, through publishing, through education. So grateful to have had Dr. Winford Neely with me to talk about uh, the dedication uh, of uh, a new uh, dedication of a building to the life and legacy of Mary McLeod Bethune. You can find out more at our website as well as on our social media pages. But as promised, I'm so grateful to have with me now, Dr. Esau McCauley, you know, as we thought about uh, folks to talk to during 
uh, Black History Month, about the um, uh, the complex uh, black experience in America. Dr. McCauley's name uh, came to my heart, and I was so grateful that he had time to join us today. He's a professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. He's also an author who's written many works. I had the privilege of uh, interviewing him a few years ago on his uh, book, uh, Reading While Black. It's won so many awards, including Christianity Today's Book of the Year Award. Uh, he also is a contributing opinion writer. His works have uh, been uh, displayed in New York Times, uh, also in the Atlantic, the Washington Post, and as uh, I mentioned previously, Christianity Today. His newest book, How Far to the Promised Land, is a memoir subtitled One Family Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. Uh, Dr. McCauley joins me now. How are you, brother? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Man, it's uh, always a privilege. I know life is busy as a husband, as a father, as a professor, uh, ordained yeah. minister. So much is going on, author, and so I'm grateful for you. You know, one of the things I've come to realize, and I think those who follow your work have come to realize, is that you strongly are opposed to and reject simple narratives. Uh, you just—that oh, true? <laughs> uh, that seems to be the case for you. Your your book isn't isn't really. In some ways, it's about one family, your family, yeah. but it but in another way, it it really is many stories all at once, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I think I think one of the things that I said is that when you're poor, black, and southern, it's almost like all of American history happens to you. In other mm -hmm. words, one of the things that money does, it provides a buffer between you and kind of the, the, the most difficult parts of the human experience. If, you're, if you don't want to see a lot of poverty, you can just move somewhere where you don't see the homeless. But if you're poor, then you're kind of in the, you, you experience the ups and downs of the market in a particular way. But also if you're in the South, there's the long history of racism and injustice that also impacts your life. And if you're black, then you're dealing with, so in other words, what can be the story of one family can very easily at the very same time become a story of America. Now, do you think that that's why the book has been so broadly received? It seems like the book has had such a great reception. Are you surprised by that? And why do you think that is? I am surprised. I mean, I never expected people to really respond to the book in the way that they have, it's been a tremendous honor. And so I think that one thing, it's one thing to make an argument. It's another thing to tell a story. And I think that sometimes we, we, we get caught up in trying to, to score political points. And I think that when you are honest and open enough to say, these are the things that happened to me and my family, it allows people to, to listen and take in the story without being put on the defensive. And That's so it's good. been really uh, an act of grace. I think that we can get so caught up in this battle of us versus them. One of the things that, and the other thing you talked about is simplicity. Uh, sometimes I, I listen to stories and I, I hear stuff on the radio or on podcasts, you know, they want to say, you know, the real problem is, the problem is racism and injustice and all of these things. And that's true, there's racism in the world. And I experienced racism as a kid. But another problem that was also existing in the world was my own sin, right? The mm. things that I did and, and the things that I got wrong. And so there is one part of society that wants to say, no, no, no. It's all about the choices that we make. 
and the other part of society that says, you know, it's all about the structures and these things. And what I want to say is my life and my story was a mix of both. And I think most of us yes. realize that the simplistic answers that are trumpeted in the media aren't true to our experience. And as a part of us, even when we're arguing for our position really strongly, we kind of know, yeah, I'm saying this, but a part of me knows that this isn't the whole story. And so yeah. I'm really grateful that people gave me the permission to tell a complicated narrative. You know, honestly, one of the challenges of this interview I already see is going to be uh, having boundaries, <laughs> borders around yeah. our conversation, because there's so many places I would long to go f- go to with you. You're just such a thoughtful and insightful brother, and it resonates with my heart. But I want this to be fruitful and really instructive yeah. for those who are listening. And, and so in order to do that, I want to start with looking at your story where in many ways the book starts and that is with your, your father talk about um, his, his death and the significance of that moment and how it led to this book. Yeah. So um, my father was a truck driver and a significant um, aspect of my life is that at a young age, he's when I was younger, he was addicted to drugs and alcohol and he was in and out of jail through most of my childhood. And so his absence um, in my life marked a significant source of trauma. But um, when I was about in 2017, he was on a truck driving trip coming back from California to the United States where he dies in a single car accident where his truck falls off the road and, and he passes away. And it quickly becomes clear that, that my, family wants me, I'm ordained minister, to perform the eulogy. And that was, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a traumatic event when you have to think about telling the, telling the story of your own father. And one of the things you do in the eulogy is that you're not just, just engaging in sentimentality, you're trying to make sense of a life. And so since he had been in and out of my life throughout most of my childhood, I didn't know him very well. And so I had to do what I do oftentimes as a clergy person. When you get ready to do the eulogy, you speak to members of the family. And so as I began to dig into his family history, prepare mm-hmm. the eulogy, what began as a journey to understand him also became a journey to understand me and how the events in his past and his family impacted me. And, when I, and the further that I got into that story, they realized that this was bigger than a, a father who had abandoned his son. There was a long history of family trauma, racism, and significant events in, in American history that, that marked my family life. And that was the beginning of what became How Far to the Promised Land, one family story of hope and survival. You say concerning your dad that you are persuaded that he lived his whole life trying to prove a dead man wrong. What do you mean by yeah. that? So when I was a kid, it was easy to think of my father as just this villain, this guy who um, abandoned us when he was a child. And that's how I talked about him for most of our lives. He abandoned us. I wanted to be the better father, the one who stayed. And after he passed away and I began to hear about my family history, I learned that he was a victim of his father leaving him. And his father had abandoned their family, just like my father would abandon my family. And he came back into their lives at, at the um, towards the end of my father's life. And my grandfather, I never met my grandfather. 
My grandfather told my dad that he was never going to be anything. That he was going to be, you know, a failure. Mm-hmm. And that abandonment shaped my father. He didn't know what to do under pressure. And so like his father before him, he ran. And so when I began to realize I wasn't the only person dealing with family trauma and familiar rejection, it didn't undo the wrongs that my father did, but it helped put those wrongs into context. And so I think that sometimes we can have one perspective on people when when they're playing a role in our narratives. So when my father abandoned me, I saw him only as the villain. But as I began to understand his own story and what it was like for him to grow up without a dad in the United States of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, I began to see him not just as a villain, but also as a victim. Why do you think, and we we had about a minute before our break, why do you think your family asked you to do the eulogy? I think, well, there were three people who, who could could have done the eulogy really briefly. My, fa- my mom's um, dad, who was also a minister, but he never liked my father. And there was also the pastor of the church that we went to, but he didn't he didn't have a real connection to my father either. And my sister actually says, it's, it's kind of funny we say this now. I want my I want my brother to do it because I know that he will tell the truth. And so my family, I think, knew that I would try to find both the truth of his narrative that I wouldn't co- cover over the hard parts, but I'm also might try to bust up the redemptive. Maybe you pressing through your own family's story, both the trauma and the triumph. I can't uh, recommend Esau McCauley's book uh, highly enough. How far to the promised land? Maybe you're trying to understand the complicated narrative of what it means to be black in America. I would recommend how far to the promised land. Maybe you're trying to process through a father wound and get to the place of redemption and healing in that journey. How far to the promised land. I think it'll touch and bless your life. Go to our website, equipradio.org. More with Dr. Esau McCauley right after this break. Next up on Equip. Welcome back to Equip with Chris Brooks. Want to say thank you to our friends and partners who make this program possible through your generosity. I'm so grateful for you. So let me just give a big heartfelt thank you to Kathleen from Ohio. Also, Dean from Illinois. Uh, Also, Craig, who just supported the program as well from Naples, Florida. So grateful for all of you. We are uh, still roughly about 65% away from our budgeted goal for this month and only a little bit over a week to go. And so certainly need your prayerful and financial support. If the program has been a blessing to you and encouragement to you, can you consider giving your most generous tax-deductible donation today to help us to continue to broadcast the love and the truth that is found in Christ alone, his grace and the salvation that he provides for all who trust in him and the healing that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. If those things are important to you, can you stand with us today? Please go to our website, equipradio.org. Maybe consider giving a gift of $100 or $250 or a $500 gift or even a $1,000 gift. Whatever your best gift could be, now would be a great time to do that. Our typical gift is $30 a month, and so maybe you can do that. 
wherever we fit into your budget. Could you please call this number now, 888-644-4144. Go to our website, EquippedRadio.org. That's EquippedRadio.org. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Esau McCauley, talking about his uh, book, How Far to the Promised Land. It's one family's story of hope and survival in the American South. Dr. McCauley, one of the things that I find when telling the story about what it means to be black in America is that it's complicated. You mentioned it earlier. We quickly want to go to, uh, it seems like one or two pretty simple narratives, either the narrative that everything is about victimization and institutional anti-black racism, or to the other narrative that life is all about pulling yourself up from your bootstraps. Some have the work ethic to do that, some don't, and it's all about individual life choices. But your grandmother seems to defy those simple narratives. Talk about her life in light of that. Yeah, so this is one of the things that I wanted to to highlight in the narrative. My grandmother was, my great-grandmother, Sophia, was was a, a tenant farmer. She was raised in a time where they didn't think it was worth the, the energy to educate a black woman. But she began by picking cotton in the early 1900s. And she, she picked cotton. And then she also cleaned homes in the evenings. And then at night, she would, um, when she wasn't picking cotton and she wasn't um, cleaning homes, she was also a midwife. And so she saved up enough money to buy her own plot of land. It basically, it's what they say, mm. you hard work, you do everything you're supposed to, and you, you succeed. And she buys a plot wow. of land, and, and, and our family lives there. I actually live out my first few years of my life. We actually spent on that land. But one of the other wow. things that happened is there was a fire on that property. And as a result, people lost their lives. But also, my grandmother had to take out a loan to pay for the repairs on the house. But she was illiterate. And so she didn't see the terms of the loan. Actually, none of us saw it. And so she began to make payments, and she made payments for the last 25 to 30 years of her life. And then when her granddaughter, her daughter took over the, those payments was my granddaughter, my, my grandmother. She also made payments. And this goes from the 1950s up until my grandmother passes away um, in the early 2000s. And when she passes away, because of the terms of the loan, we never saw it. That land re- reverted back to the people who owned it in the first place. And so my family, wow. even though they had done everything right, they were cheated out of their property and it was done so because of systemic racism that the white family that they could control the terms of the loan manipulated my family we paid for land that we already owned just for the repairs on the house now it couldn't have been more than a few thousand dollars for something like 40 to 50 years it's, it's hard to 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 um to get the details because like we said there, there are no records and so if my grandmother both reveals right what hard work can do but it also reveals um, what systemic racism can take away. And so what I want to say is that it's not simply a matter of hard work getting you there. Sometimes there are things to get in the way of our hard work that prevent flourishing. One of the things I've often thought about, because interestingly enough, after the book was over, I went back and did some more research. That land was eventually given to a church. And now it just sits there dormant. I went back to the place this summer and it's all just overgrown. And so wow. I've, I've thought about maybe buying that land to bring it back into the family, but I haven't decided whether or not I should do it yet because you've already put so much into that little plot of land. Maybe I should just let it go and, yeah. and let it sit as an injustice. 
You know, it's so interesting, and I want to get back to this, about the cost of this book. You say every book has a cost, and uh, certainly you paid a high price, and in some ways continue to pay a high price for this book. I, but but I want to come back to that, because as I listen to your grandmother's story, it causes me to wonder, how do you see your story now? Um, yeah. I, many will look at you and say, Esau, your proof that if you work yeah. hard, you go to school, you get an education, yeah. you yeah. leverage your talents, your skills, your abilities, that you can make it. You're a professor. You're firmly entrenched yeah. in the middle class. You're married, yeah. a beautiful family, PhD. How do you see your yeah. story? Well, I'll tell um, another story related. This occurs in the book. The day I was getting ready to go to college, a friend of mine whose family had done all of the right things as well, and he was getting ready to go to the college at MTSU, this Middle Tennessee State University, about an hour and a half away from where I went to school at Swanee in Tennessee. And the night before he was going to college, he was saying goodbye to his girlfriend, and someone comes up to his car, and they say, you know, give me your rims or whatever. They're robbing him. He doesn't move quickly enough, and he's murdered. And the next morning, I'm getting ready to go to school because we had spoken earlier on the, um, we had seen each other in town. We both knew we were going to head to college on the same day. And the morning that I got ready to leave, I saw on the news that he had been murdered. And so I thought to myself, you know, I'm going away to college, but he's not going away to college. And he did yeah. absolutely nothing wrong. And so I felt like my job was not simply to present myself as the hero, but to actually remember all of the people who didn't have those opportunities to come with me. Some of those yeah. failures because of mistakes of their own making and some of those because of the world in which we live. And so I feel like my story isn't simply about me, but that because I have the microphone, what I want to be able to do is to use that microphone to say, are we comfortable with the kind of America that continues to do this to people? And so rather than saying my story absolves the country or even individuals from the mistakes they make, is that my story at least hopefully shines a light on the community that I came from and the kinds of things that I and the wider culture owe to the people in those communities. So that's how I think of my story as the responsibility to remember and to tell it. And, and when, it, when I say that, it doesn't mean tell the story in such a way that only people outside of the community are guilty. It's to tell the whole story, to tell about the, own, the brokenness in those spaces and the ways in which the wider society contributes to that brokenness. To tell what people who are suffering deserve is the truth and not to uh, make the truth yes. more palatable just because we had the microphone. If you don't want the truth, don't ask Esau Macaulay because he's going to tell you <laughs> the truth. Why is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, the story of the parable of the Pharisee and a tax collector, why is that so deeply personal to you? And why is it also so complicated? What do we miss about yeah. the depths of that passage? So that's the passage when they asked me to preach my father's eulogy pretty quickly. The Lord put it on my heart that that was the passage I wanted to preach on. And the reason I preached about it, because at the end of, towards the end of my father's life, he has kind of a, a, a task collector moment where he comes back to the Lord. And we love to preach this sermon in churches where you say, it doesn't matter what you've done or how you lived your life, no matter what you've been through. Even at the last moment, you can kind of turn to Jesus and say that you're, you repent and you're saved, like the thief on the cross. And we love to tell that story as a story of God's gracious desire 
to save even the most broken people. And that story is actually true. I don't want to dismiss that part of the story. But it's also true that the tax collector lived an entire life before he was converted. And before the tax collector was converted, he, he caused tremendous pain in the community. In other words, he was the guy who collaborated with the empire. He went around taking people's hard-earned money that they needed to live so that he can fatten his pockets. And so the question isn't, do we, do we rejoice in his conversion? Yes, we do. But I wonder if someone who had been robbed by the tax collector, how would they feel when they saw him now walking with God? There'd be both joy and a little bit of, but you hurt me. And now, I, now that you changed, I have to reorient you in my narrative. That's one of the reasons why the tax collectors were outsiders. That even if they repented, yes. they had a legacy yes. of pain. And so my father was someone who both repented and I could rejoice in that. But in the, the life he lived before his repentance caused tremendous pain to me and my family. And so I was trying to explore that, that hard thing. Because part of us, and, and I know we don't want to admit this, like I know we're all super safe, but <laughs> when some, what, what, there, there's a comfort in broken people staying broken because it justifies our anger. Yeah. And when they change, now we have to do business in our own heart it forces yes. us to do the hard work of forgiveness. And so you part know, of the book is about me doing the hard work of forgiveness. You know, it's, it's, it's so profound what you're saying. And you can insert, you can substitute for a son's father and that relationship, yeah. the tax collector relationship. But you can also yeah. substitute how many wives are married to unsaved husbands who maybe yeah. are actively praying for years for their salvation, but when they ultimately yeah. come to Christ, kind of are a little bit bitter because it feels like <laughs> this man who's done everything wrong yeah. gets a free pass, uh, and you yeah. know, and, and she had to endure all of this stuff. All of us who have held on to unforgiveness uh, for uh, a long time know what you're talking about very, very deeply. Um, yeah, and, and, I, and, uh, I, and I think... I think that it's hard for us to to come to grips with they 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 play a role in our narrative and yes. to change that role after such a long period of time is really difficult. I want to take the final break of the day when I come back I would love to hear how being in a biracial marriage has impacted the way you see race in America also living abroad you had the uh privilege of uh, living in Japan for a while, uh, living living abroad as you pursued studies as well, your PhD. And so I'd love to hear how having that outsider's perspective allow, allow you to really um, see things in fresh and new light. Also, how does the wounds of our past impact us today? That's a really important question, and I think the book does a great job in answering that. Uh, this story is one person's story, as the as a, as a uh, subtitle says. It's one family's story of hope and survival in the American South. But yet, I believe you'll find your story as well. We'll be right back. with Chris Brooks. Time flies when you're having a riveting conversation, such as the case with Esau McCauley. His book is entitled, How Far Did a Promised Land 
what a wonderful book. It's more than just uh, the story of his family. I think it's the story of all of our hearts and our families as well. Go to our website, find out more, how to order equipradio.org. Dr. McCauley, you informed me during the break that you are out of the country now. I alluded yes. to the fact that you've had the privilege of living and studying abroad. How has those experiences shaped the way you see our racial discussions here in America? Yeah, one of the good things about getting outside of America is that you see some distance. When I when I lived in Japan, I, I, I became really aware. I don't want to get too deeply into it, but I was on an island called Okinawa. And the Okinawans are a slightly different ethnic group than the people of mainland Japan. And the Okinawans have historically experienced discrimination because they're a little bit dark. They look a little bit different. And the other truth is that I noticed that there is kind of historic racial tensions between China. I knew this, but to, to be there on the ground between China, Korea, and Japan. And so you begin to see what we have in America as it relates to Black-white racism is one manifestation of the animosity between ethnic groups that exist globally. In other words, there's this tendency in human beings to try to find value in things other than that which God um, values. And we're always trying to find some reason to put ourselves above our neighbor. The other thing that I, that I, that I noticed, I mean, that might be the first part, but the other thing that I noticed is that things that make a lot of sense in an American context looks really strange from overseas. Um, when I would, I've asked questions, my friends would ask me questions when I was here in England. They'd be like, why do you do this in America? And I kind of go, you don't understand. And then once you begin to explain it, you kind of go, well, actually, this doesn't make any sense. And so there's a lot of things <laughs> that we take for granted in the States that are just hard for people to imagine um, abroad. So, for example, the gun culture in America is radically different than it is in England. It's just hard to get a gun. Uh, yeah. And it's genuinely mostly hunters. And so they just don't really, they, they can intellectually understand it. But if there's a knifing in, in England, that's national news. Um, like these mass shootings and those kinds of things are just hard for people in the UK to get their heads around. What is it, uh, how's it impacted you being in a biracial marriage to talk about these things? Well, I think that, I don't know if, it's impacted me in a particular way. What I wanted to say is that sometimes we treat interracial marriages as kind of the solutions to um, racial problems in America. And I don't, I don't necessarily think of it that way. I think that um, when you have a society that throws together people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, sometimes there are different people from people from different ethnic groups are going to meet and fall in love. And what unites us as human beings, and, I, and me and my wife share love for Jesus, has kind of helped us work our way through things that might want to pull us apart. But that same kind of desire to be to raise children who who want to love Jesus is the same as I have friends who are in you know my single racial marriage or whatever the language of it is. And so I, I don't want to necessarily present interracial marriages as some kind of panacea. Yeah. But I do yeah. think it's it's one manifestation of what God is up to in the world. And I think it's a non-competitive beauty. Is probably how I would describe it. It's not in competition with black marriages and and what they represent and and mean to communities any more than anybody else. So I just think it's it's one it's one combination amongst many of how God yeah. draws together people who are who who are rooted um, primarily. What, what what unites me and my wife is our shared 
conviction that Jesus is the savior of the world. Yeah, well, I'm super grateful for uh, Mandy and your kids and and your family. I want to ask one more family question, and that is, how has yeah. learning about your father and your grandfather's legacy and and even the impact of your father's absence on your life impacted you as a dad? I think that it clarified my aspirations. It might be a little bit odd because I, I'm a writer and I end up on things like radio shows, but I really never cared for any of this. As a kid, I always <laughs> had this clear idea in my head. It's like this hypothesis. You ever had these ideas to get in your head, you just can't get rid of them? Yeah. I knew very clearly as a child how it impacted me not having my dad around. I was really conscious of the damage he was doing to me. And I said, I wonder what it would be like if there was a son who had a dad who loved him. Like, how would that impact how he was being, how he was formed? And how would it impact? This is before I even, I thought girls were gross at the time. I was in like third or fourth grade. <laughs> I said, what would it be like if there was a woman who had a, a person who, who loved her passionately? How would that impact their life? And so from a kid, my childhood, all I ever wanted to be was um, a husband and a father. And so that has shrunk my aspirations down to a few things. All of the rest of this stuff, I could care less about. And it's actually been hard because I don't think I to figure out, well, what do you do when you're not being a dad and a father? I guess you got to go get a job and pay for stuff. And so it's, it's, it's right. shown, and, and I think, I think, I think God, I think God in his providence has, has protected me from some of the trappings of having a more public life because I genuinely, I've already experienced as a child that it doesn't matter what you have if you don't have a family. Mm. And so for mm. me, it's made me, I'm, I'm shockingly boring. Um, one of the things that I've enjoyed, and you, I, I, I'm in England on sabbatical, so I'm, I'm doing bad. I'm missing dinner right now. But I'm, yeah. I've enjoyed being mostly off, literally out of the country, not doing very many podcasts, not traveling in the speak, and then being home with my children every day and with my wife. That's that's the best thing that you can, that you can have. And so I would say um, it's clarified that for me. Well, you're a blessing, brother, and I want to let you get back to dinner. But I'm super grateful that you wrote this book, that you carved out time to be with us today. Thank you for bearing your soul. We talked about the high price of books, and you paid a high emotional toll, but uh, much to the benefit of many. Please give our love to your wife and children, and uh, brother, just know we're praying for you. God bless you, Esau. Thank you. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. Uh, Friends, I want to encourage you to get a copy of the book, How Far to the Promised Land. It's one family story, but again, in that story, I think we'll find all of our stories. And until we're together again next time, as always, remember, Equip with Chris Brooks is a ministry of Moody Bible Institute, and we'll be with you tomorrow. God bless.